לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Jeremy Kalmanowski, Anshay Chesed, New Year, New Year, Parsha Talk, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Salman Shek, the day school Long Island. How did it feel to end the Torah? How did it feel to start the Torah? Barry, what was going through your mind? Were you thinking about our last conversation on Parsha Talk? So I, I think that the, the key image for us as Jews is the spiral, whereas pagan religion favors the circle. So the circle of life is really a pagan image. It's creates the problem for the Lion King, for those of us who loved watching it. But in Judaism, we have a spiral, and it's a three-dimensional spiral. It's not a concentric circle. So every year, we have a new perspective. We come above, basically, where we were the year before and look down at the same thing. So we have the same Torah text every year, but we're different. Yeah. Jeremy, what, how, how was your experience that... What, Anything you want to reflect on as the Torah ended, the Torah began, just anything going on? Well, I like what I like Barry said. You know, you, you, the, the texts are the same every time, and hopefully our eyes are a little bit open, our eyes are a little bit different. I like the verse in Psalm 119, Open my eyes that I can see the wonders of your teaching. And that's, that's my covenant for Torah study. Wow, I was thinking, you know, we, we end, we begin, it's death of Moses, and and we're, we're starting over again. And we're starting over again with Breshit and the story of creation. And um, I want to I want to bounce an idea off of you. I want to get your reaction to see if I, I'm onto something or if I'm if I just got to shelve it. OK, <laughs> so I'm very much interested in word pairs ever since I, I, I began immersing myself in Psalm 27 which is filled with 13 or 14 pairs, tsarai ve'oivayli, et cetera, et cetera, ori ve'yishi, all of these things there. There's a certain you know, aspect, a blatant aspect to the pairing of words in that psalm, and that's a feature of the Hebrew language. So if you look at the first day of creation, you have, I counted six word pairs implicit in this, uh, in this paragraph, in, this, in these five verses. Shamayim va'aretz, tohu va'vohu. You have or va'choshech. You have yom va'layla, era va'voker. So you have you have six sets of of paired words, and there's only one word that's not paired, and that word is Elohim. Elohim. So the interesting thing, Elliot, the Bible critic that you are, in the next story, <laughs> God's going to be Adonai Elohim because he okay. needs to pair. So that's that's my week. That's the weak point of my kingdom. No, 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 no. That's a, that's a good point because as Rashi has it, as Barry was alluding to, the, the world starts off with midat hadin, and okay. it's all orderly, and it's all rigor. And at some point, uh, according to this midrash, which Rashi, which Rashi brings, 
is that that's just not going to work, and we need a balance. Um, and so it becomes Adonai Elohim pairing Midat HaRachamim, the attribute of mercy with the attribute of strict justice. It could work that way. Okay, but I, I'm, I'm going for, like, here's God. God is outside of creation, and God is the only thing that's not paired, uh, and God um, and everything else is moving towards this kind of dynamic of a, of, of, the, of a paired existence. And it works its way through all creation, even at the end with the creation of human beings, because the human being, as you know, is created as Zachar ben Keva Barautam, which is the male-female creation, but, but understood largely, it's, it moves into the second chapter, which Lotov Hayot Adam Levado, which seems to be the, the driving conflict of, of at least human history, which is the human being can't be alone. And so I would say I would say Elliot that um, that what you're what you're pointing to I think is incredibly illustrative and very sharp here about Genesis chapter one. Uh, most of our listeners will know that there's that there's a creation story in Genesis one, a creation story in Genesis two, and I highly recommend to anybody a, a book called Creation and the Persistence of Evil by the Bible scholar John Levinson about uh, how Genesis one is an attempt to give us an absolutely transcendent, very, very powerful God who needs not defeat anybody or master anybody. Just God is, God is, as you said, outside the world, and the world has its, you know, mechanisms, and God is not part of them. God is over and around them. And so, what you said, I think, is is illustrative, um, you know, in a literary way about the theological idea of Genesis one. It's like there there are all this stuff in the world and and those things may be paired and maybe those things maybe the pairs of those things suggest some kind of like underlying you know sexual mythos right there's there's heaven and earth and then then there's male and female and there's day and night but god is not one of them god is transcendent of them so so what i'm driving at is you know many many things here except the the, the idea that this is a story but it contains some deep philosophical truths that are part and parcel of Judaism. The Genesis one doesn't doesn't knock you on the head and say what Deuteronomy says. Shema Yisrael and Eilahin and Eichad. It doesn't doesn't really drive that point home. It's implicit. God is one. God has no parent. God is outside of creation, and everything unfolds from basically the word God's word. Yehi or by Yehi or God says it is, and that's the way creation goes. And so creation, rather than being, you know, an, a, an, an interesting thing to put up in a chart and, and illustrate and teach children, which we all do, um, creation, the creation story, chapter one, is really a deep philosophical story on so, so many levels. Um, so I just want to interject a couple of points. So first of all, one of the things that your words suggest is something one of my teachers years ago pointed out that number, one of the properties of numbers is that they have no synonyms. And that's why in Amos you have three and four, because uh, they're functionally equivalent, but you can't say three twice, as it were. So you go three and four, or in the poetic expression, 1,000, 10,000. So what you're suggesting is that because one is unpaired, it has no synonym semantically either. And so it has to be suggested how different God is by the heaping up of all these different word pairs. So, so, and and the punchline of this is Vayer Vayvoker Yom Echad, which is 
uh, unusual because the counting should be Yom Rishon. It should be the first day. It's it's here. It's Yom Echad, and and I think that gives the game away. Basically, it's the, it's the day, day of the one. The day of the one. That's that's quite right. Um, the the idea of pairs, you know, is also expressed in a great midrash about, um, you know, that Shabbat is sorry because she is unspoused. So, you know, this Sunday is Monday, Tuesday is Wednesday, Thursday is Friday, and Shabbat says, "I'm all alone," and God says, "Don't worry, Israel will be your mate." And so we have this beautiful, you know, this beautiful image of symmetry. By the way, so think about the way that our week is a seven, but many things. Um, are, are th- their perfection is testified to by the number eight, such as eight days of the Brit Milah or eight days on the eighth day the animal is permitted to be sacrificed or the holiday that we just concluded, Sukkot, which is this world creation festival and a temple dedication festival is culminated in Shemini Atzeret, an eighth day, not, not a seventh day. So like what's even number, what's an odd number? Okay, so... As usual, we could spend half an hour only on that on that on the first day, but I, we have so much material in in Parshat Breshit. Um Barry, talk for a second about about Adam and Chava and and uh, your your what do you see in that story? And then we're going to move to Cain and, and Havel. So I like to teach the story as a coming of age story. At the beginning of the story, Adam and Chava are naked in the garden, and they're not embarrassed. Not unlike little kids running around on the beach without any clothes on. And as soon as they eat from the tree, they realize that they're naked and they're embarrassed, which is characteristic of puberty. When we first become aware of our bodies, that our bodies are somehow not, they're both all of us and yet not of us. And we have a great deal of tension as we work our way through adolescence until we come out on the other side. So that Adam and Eve live in a world that's designed for children. Children have everything handed to them, right? The child is hungry, we give them the bottle. And that's not a sustainable world. In other words, if Adam and Eve had remained in the garden, we would not be here. They have no need for kids unless they know they're going to die. And I think that what we have in the story, and there's a lot more that can be said about it, is a working out of the challenges and the rewards of living in the adult world. All the features of the story that we marvel at, the snake, um, the punishment of Eve, the punishment of Adam, all come to explain phenomena that our ancestors piqued our ancestors' curiosity. You know, women, females, humans are the only mammals that experience pain in childbirth, for example. Snakes, when you look around the world, they're the only animals crawling on the ground. And so in our language, we would say Darshanian. So we have the story of Adam and Eve to explain that. I think that what we need to recognize is that Adam and Eve have to leave the garden because our world is not a garden of Eden. Is that God's design? Do you think God set them up to with these, these boundaries in order for the boundaries to break? Do, do you... Yeah, I, I, I think that we have to understand that, I, I think sometimes, especially 
in the modern world, we spend way too much time focusing on sin and not enough time thinking about redemption. Mm, interesting. Jeremy, I think, I, think, yeah, I think what Barry said is about the coming of age story is, is manifestly true. Um, Jews, I think, sometimes have, uh, have been anxious because, because Christian readings of the Garden of Eden story are so um, a, you know, anti-sexuality, Jews have sometimes been constrained to, to say, no, 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 that's, it's not what it's about. It's not about a sexual awakening. Uh, and, and it says, you know, the birth of Cain and, and Abel, you know, and, and the man knew his wife. And it says it in a grammatical structure, indicating that it happened before the previous thing. So we like to say, so even there was sexuality even in the garden, but it's manifestly true that what, what Barry said, that the garden is a story about, you know, that, that kind of um, sexual awareness and, and uh, the shame of body. And I think that that's absolutely true. There's no way to, I, I don't think, read the story. You, you have to hold two things. You have to hold that it was a rebellion. Yes, that's true. And that God must have seen that rebellion was part of the system. I mean, you can't read the story of the human being violating the commandment, hiding in shame, being punished and cursed, as like God says, ha ha, that's exactly what I wanted. No, it is a story of rebellion, but it is also true that we should we should be among those beings who know the difference between good and bad, and we should have our eyes opened, and we should become you know driven out into the world to do everything that we do. So I think I think the the, the richness of the story is that both of those things are true. So let me let me offer the following proposition that uh, Eve is the heroine of the story. That is to say. That because of female, Eve, so there's not a lot of competition. <laughs> Touche. But because of her, knowledge comes into the world. And were it not for her, then one could argue that Adam would be kind of, you know, do, doing fine. Okay. So if you're going to do that, Elliot, I think you really have to push the story a little more. Because why does Eve eat the fruit? She eats the fruit because it looks good. And wait, wait, wait. She eats the food. It, it is ta'avahu le'inayim. It is desirable to the guys. It is good for enlightenment. So it's not just it's not just that it's yummy, although it's that too, um, but it, it is nechmat lehaskil, and it's, it seemed to impart wisdom to her. So right. she, and knowledge is pleasing. It comes with a cost, but I think those of us who pursue knowledge get great pleasure out of it. That's part of the pursuit. And the other thing that your words suggested to me is that what we have in the beginning of Gray Sheet is a world where human beings certainly are imperfect, but there's also a kind of imperfection to God as well. But every time God keep, picks himself up, as it were, and starts again. Yeah. You know, in the Midrash, of course, he destroys the world a few times before he gets to ours. But in the Torah, he doesn't destroy the world completely. He can't abandon his original plan completely. But he keeps playing with the plan until he gets to Abraham and decides that he gets it right. And even no, I think Abraham lives in an experiment going on. But go ahead, I, I, I think that uh, we, um, you know, Jewish theology has a nice long history and, and we've been you know, practicing this religion for a nice long time. And so for lots of reasons, I'll just peg this on Maimonides, but it doesn't have to be Maimonides. 
you know, the idea that God could change or God could make a mistake is like, what? That's not, that's not this religion. This religion has God as the paradigm of perfection. But in the Bible stories, that's clearly not the case. In the Bible stories, God is a learner and an experimenter and a trier and a failure and a resume and start all over again kind of uh, kind of figure. And it's never more exemplified than in this parashah, which, which concludes that God says, oh, I'm so sorry I made humanity. That was a dumb idea. But he's sorry he made humanity. And he's also curious about the, the, the creation of humanity. He's curious about what this human being is going to do and what this human being is going to be. And with that, we can move into the next story because I think the next story, if you, we could read the next story as a, a story of divine surprise. Look, what happens is the two boys are born. As you said, the Cain and Abel, when Cain is born, she says, Kaniti isheta Adonai, I have acquired a human or created a human with God. She continues to have a child, she has Hevel, and then all of a sudden one is a Ro'etzon, one is a shepherd, and one is Oved Adama. So we don't have any other details that one becomes a Ro'etzon, one becomes a shepherd, and one becomes Oved Adama. And already, already there, you have the, the compressed notion of something's going on, something's very interesting. Why would Hevel be a shepherd when God has already said, you know, you're only going to eat from the ground, right? That when they are cursed from the Garden of Eden, they're, they're told, you are to eat by the sweat of your brow. And here he is, he's tending sheep. So, right, because the sheep can eat the bad stuff that grows on the cursed earth. Okay. Right? It's not really fit for human consumption, but it's fit for sheep. It's fit for sheep, but... So but, Abel is a kind of wise guy. Yes. So, and, Wait, do you mean wise man or wise guy? No, I think a, not a wise guy in the sense of Tony Soprano, but <laughs> kind of a guy who, you know... Think, Inventive. You know, thinking a, a little bit ahead. He's inventive and he's free. He's a conniver. He's cunning. But he's he also like the snake. He also sees that from a sheep you can get wool, from a sheep you can get milk, from a sheep you can get meat. And and I'm offering the following interpretation, which is even though they've been told don't eat meat, you know what? He has this the, the hunger for meat. Otherwise, what would he be doing? you know slaughtering the animal he, he well so wait a second so do you so you are going to double down on uh hevel not just being a roet zone not just a shepherd but a shochet and he has he has been off killing the animals um and and consuming them which the Torah does not exactly say but of course that is what shepherds general job is i would like to you know comment on the fact that the as, as you said, Elliot, when Cain's name, his mother says, I have made Kaniti I've made a person with, with God's help. Uh, the name suggests possession and accomplishment. Hevel's name means breath or vapor. And I'm not entirely sure that he is portrayed here as a killer, although he does offer an animal sacrifice. Um, what if he were close to the animals because animals and humans share a kind of spirit, a kind of a breath, which which the ground, the produce of kind, does not have a breath 
there's more life in Hevel and less and a, and a more brutal uh, or more primitive sense for Cain. I think there's something very, very deep going on in the story. And it, and it has to do possibly with the evolutionary history of, of human beings. At some point, they learn how to consume flesh for food. And it's probably very early on in human well, history. So that's an interesting question. I don't remember my anthropology quite so well. But how do you learn to consume flesh? If you think of animals in the wild, they consume flesh. So I can imagine human beings emerging from that world, that would be natural as it were to eat flesh. And the real chachma is farming, is committing yourself to growing vegetables. Um, so, so yes and yes. The real chachma is, is growing vegetables, growing grain and knowing how to transform that. But the real chachma even before that is knowing how to use fire. And to use fire in order to to create to 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 acquire meat because it's the most accessible, nutritious, uh, mineral-packed, vitamin-packed food that makes efficient for uh, eating and getting your nutrients and growing a big brain. Okay, which well, is crucial to human evolutionary history. So what's we have to take into account is what we call the staff of life is bread, which also requires a fire. Yes. And sustains a person perhaps more than meat. Okay. Certainly, certainly, certainly the ancient people, and, and this again calls into question the image of, of, Kai, of Hevel as a, uh, a butcher, not just a, um, not just a, ro- uh, a shepherd. It is a, uh, that shepherds don't eat the meat unless they kind of have to, because it's very, it's like a, it's a, it's a, a very precious commodity. Okay, so I'm sorry. I've been watching this guy, this wilderness cooking. This Borukul, what do you call Borukul? His name is Tavakul. He's, he lives in Azerbaijan. I find these videos enthralling. He's a shepherd, okay? He's a big guy and he's got sheep. And he has no problem going out to the flock, taking one of the sheep. It goes off camera. And then it comes back and you see a carcass. And he chops it up, chops it up, and he puts all the spices on it. And he roasts it and cooks it. And he invites all the kids from the village to come and eat at the table. I think it's amazing. It's just, it's so interesting that here's a guy who's living basically the way our ancestors lived. Okay, and he has no problem, and it's he's yeah. getting his full nourishment. And of course, he engages with trade and trade in the marketplace. He buys his vegetables, he buys his flour from the local, you know, wheat, you know, uh, farmer. He does all. There's interactions, but he's got the meat, and he's slaughtering, and and he has no problem with that. Okay, and I think wait, wait, no problem. Know, when you say no problem, I'm I'm not proposing that ancient shepherds had moral problems or whatever. I, I'm suggesting that. First of all, that that even the contemporary person who's like living on the land as a shepherd, uh, we can't retroject that four thousand years ago people had the same relationship to abundance and quantity. So I'm proposing, and I, I what I have read, this is true that that people were not rich enough to eat meat all the time, and there was a special a special occasion kind of a thing. So. That just makes sense to me. Like if 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 you're if you're 
your your wealth and your economic abundance is in the sheep, you're not gonna like you're gonna want to have them hang around long enough to reproduce and have more sheep. You're not gonna want to have them at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Right, but the males are expendable. Okay, so so isn't however, that true on so many ways of life? The males are just expendable. <laughs> however, <laughs> they end up as shepherd and farmer. Here's what happened, and this is the startling moment of the story, of course. There is a moment where Cain says, I'm going to make a sacrifice, okay? All right, after some days, Cain brings from the fruits of the soil a present to God, okay? So, you know, when I teach this, I think, you know, he's bringing potatoes and carrots. You know, the, the soil is still clinging on to the the thing, he doesn't even wash them. He brings them. What does it mean he brings them? Who knows? It, 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 does, he make an, does he make an altar? Does he kindle a flame? Does he burn it? It doesn't. But the very next verse says, Vehevel, hevi gamhu. Hevel also brings a present. Mibchorot, sono umechel vehen. From the firstlings of the flock and their fatness. Okay? So he's already seeing, I, I think the dynamic is going like this. Cain brings a gift to God, okay? That's a discovery of, I'm giving back. Hevel says, you want to see a gift? And here's your wise guy statement. I think he is being a bit of a wise guy. So you want to, you want to see a gift? I'll show you a gift. I'm going to take the fattest, fattest sheep. I'm going to put them on the altar, and I'm going to slaughter them. I'm going to commit an act of violence and shed blood of the animal, and I'm going to burn them on the altar. Because already he must have had some experience with the slaughter, and he must have had experience with discovering something about an animal and something about the smoke. And so God, it says, Sha'ah, and we always say he accepts, but Sha'ah means he pays attention. He pays attention to the sacrifice. So the Vayesha Adonai El Hevel Ve'al it's not he accepts it, he, whoa. It's like, this is a human being that has made this discovery. I'm paying attention to this, okay? And then, and, and he doesn't pay attention to, to Cain's sacrifice. And that's the moment where Cain says, okay, so you want to see something? I'll show you something. Well, it's not quite that, though, because first Cain gets angry. Okay. Right? And God cautions him. Yes. And I think, you know, it, we have to give that its due because Cain's rage is directed towards God. And I think, at least when I teach this story, that is the key point. Because I think the significance and part of Hevel's name is that Hevel is not really a character in the story on one level. He's a nothing. You know, that's what his name says. The real story is about Cain and God. And God punishes Cain for no good reason. He does not pay attention to his sacrifice. And Cain takes from God something of value to God, just like God took from Cain something of value to Cain. And what was it that God took from Cain? He took his attention. In other words, God did not give Cain his due. So God withheld. God, God is here for so now withholding Cain is going to withhold the hevel from God. All right. So this is this is where I want to enter into this debate and say that the most important thing that God has to give to human beings is attention. Uh, and, and, and it comes up at the end of the Torah where God says, I'm going to turn away from you. I'm going to hide my face from you, which is, 
you know, again, this whole theme of abandonment and turning away, which is the worst, worst possible thing that, that God could do, which is, it's also the worst, worst possible thing a parent could do, which is ignore or abandon a child. And so here you have a moment, this moment, which is so precious because it's, and I'm, I'm reading it darker, okay? Abel, Havel says, I am, I'm getting your attention. I'm doing something with a creature. It wasn't instructed to me. I'm going outside the box here. You said till the soil. I'm not tilling the soil. I got animals. I sit on a ledge all day with with a flute and a staff, and I watch them. And I they take care. They haven't been invented yet. You're watching. I, I take care of them. Okay. And when I'm hungry, I go like Tavakul and I take one out and I go to the rock and I bash its head and I roast it and I'm very very satisfied by that. Okay. And now I see that, that my brother is, is all of a sudden, one day he's very grateful. Okay, I can be grateful too. And I'm, I'm going to do what I do. And this is what God makes attention to. It, does, it doesn't give a valence, a positive or negative valence to that attention. It just says, wow, interesting. And, and that's what, what the, the, the child wants. The child wants to be noticed. Right, so, the child wants. He's calling out. Cain is calling out for attention. So the first suggestion of Hester Panim of God hiding his face is when Cain addresses God after he's been given the punishment. Yes. So he feels the punishment as God hiding his face from him. Right, yeah. he doesn't feel before necessarily that God has hid his face, but now that he's been banished. And I suppose Cain has a local idea of God. God is in a place, and if Cain can't be in that place, then he's going to be banished from God. That that is the punishment that's too great for him to bear. Absolutely. I can't. I can't decide if you, Elliot, if you feel like Hevel uh, is like Joseph. You know, like the brother who doesn't really behave that well, but succeeds anyway. Because first of all, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that Cain is the first one who in gratitude wants to make an offering. And Hevel, perhaps he is that bratty little brother who has to do everything better. And he shames. I, I want to say that Cain's uh, initiative in taking the offering and making the offering seems like it ought to be a good thing. And it's and then it's uh, and then it's hevel hevi gamhu. It's almost like an afterthought, uh, or maybe maybe the gam there means um, in competitive spirit. But either way, it's not terribly uh, nice or or you know full hearted in the way that even if it's potatoes and carrots, um, kind just seems out of nowhere. It's like I want to give my potatoes and carrots. Um, and hevel, this there's something that seems seems uh, not entirely genuine about it. But, but it certainly is true in, in the, the darkness of this story that um, Kain is a, a very dark character and it is in his jealousy. I mean, jealousy is another part of the just so stories here of Breshit. What is it that makes people behave so viciously? Uh, envy. Right. It's the violence of it. And, and you know, I, I see Kain as the obedient, you know, non-objecting person and Cain as, and, and Havel as being inventive and that and that by creating something new he attracts attention and he is the younger don't forget he is the younger and in the family structure it's always 
the youngest that either gets attention or wants attention and he gets it and and and, and that rivalry which the you know is is the torah's way of injecting this theme which doesn't really work itself out until the end of the book of Rashid, um that that it's all about who gets attention from a parent and who gets attention from the divine parent. So we we need to add something else here about the distinction between the shepherd and the uh, the farmer. The farmer is tied down by the land and to the land. The shepherd is a free spirit. Yes. He's providing guidance, but let's face it, the sheep know what to do. The earth does not know what to do. The earth has to be tended. Yes. And that goes back to the command or the description in Gan Eden, where the man is going to show Mary to obey that uh, God. But the sheep need a shepherd also. They the need sheep... a shepherd, but not quite in the same way. So that, you know, when you were talking before, the image that comes to mind is of the cowboy from the Westerns. Yeah. You know, they're riding the range. Well, you know, they're needed. But of course, the animals are doing all the heavy work. Right, and that that makes it very very efficient for the shepherd or the cowboy. Right, they they they're doing a different kind of work, and that's the point. Right, and, and, and that work though cannot sustain a society. It can only right. sustain a small part of it. It can sustain and an important part. I'm not. I don't mean right. To and and we talked also about the fact that that you know we see this conflict emerging really you know head to head at the end of Breshit, where the the brothers who are shepherds are in that grain producing society. They're in a agricultural society. And in fact, shepherds are abhorred in Egypt. They're, they're, they're told to hide that part of their identity. And in fact, they don't. They say, we're shepherds. That's what we, this is what we do. In other words, we're going to defy you. And that defiance, I think, is a really important thing that the human being that God creates is on the one hand supposed to be obedient, but shows humanity by pushing the limit. And that's what it means to be a human being. I think. Well, I, I think we can also say it shows divinity by pushing the limits too. Yeah. Okay. That we have this partnership with God that plays itself out both for good and for bad. We're always looking at the boundaries. And, yeah. and we're almost reaching the boundary of the time, the time for, for time. So just, you know, how does... Breshit, give me the post, the, 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 the ending of the Parsha. It's, talk about dark. <laughs> Perfect ending. You think things are bad? Wait till next week. Wait <laughs> till next week. Right? You it's know, a cliffhanger. You're carrying it uh, in, the, in the commentary podcast. They say we have to end with crushing morosity. <laughs> <laughs> Breshit, you know, is, is a story that ends with crushing morosity. I mean, the, the, it's God regrets having made creation. God have, is... is and and Noah is seen as the the person. Right. Yeah, well, that's the thing is that is that like I said before, whatever our theological commitments to to God as the model of, of you know metaphysical or moral perfection, the Bible does not know that, and the Bible just knows God as a person or a being of of you know infinite resilience, and it has ah, oh, this was a terrible mistake. I got I got. Uh, angels and human females and i got all kinds of terrible things i'm going to blot this whole thing out and start again yeah. god looks at the world and says this stinks this was a disaster but i can work with this 
Yeah. So the last word here, I think we have to appreciate that from a human point of view, Noah is a failure. He's born to lift the curse. He's the first human born after the death of Adam. Lemech, his father, thinks the curse is now going to be lifted off the land. And in fact, the entire world is going to be destroyed. So he's God's success, but his family's failure. Indeed. Wow. You know, there's so much to think about. And it just reminds me of, of a theme that we touch on from time to time, which is that the, the Torah addresses so many levels simultaneously. And, uh, and we haven't even scratched the surface here. And, and this is where, unfortunately, we have to leave it. We have to leave this because it just opens up more and more discussion. We just don't have the time for, but we are so happy that everyone has joined us. And thankful to you for making the commitment to join us for another year of Parsha Talk. We're so happy to have you. And we want to wish everyone a beautiful Shabbat. Shabbat Reishit. Joy.